saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. The knowledge of this knits and attaches the heart of the poor sinner to such a rich Savior. For the sinner, the very way that the Lord has led him has displayed to him the character of the God who instructs him. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver today. We're going back to the 19th century in England to talk about John Darby. Yes, but first, Joel, let's go through some positive reviews we received. Joel, we always try to read these on the show because we just really appreciate that you guys are listening. Uh, Delana Jones says, another great episode. I am always amazed at how sermons from so long ago are so relevant. Could have been preached today. Thank you. And I recently discovered that Spotify lets you leave reviews or questions or comments. And we've not looked at any of those, but several of you have left <laughs> reviews. Here's well, just it's a, a It's a relatively recent feature, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's only like two or three months old based on what I'm reading. And But I hadn't known about it. So when I went over there, there were several comments. So we weren't ignoring you. I didn't know you were there. So here's just a few of them uh, that I've read real quick. Uh, Brenty RT says, I love, love, love Revive Thought. So glad I discovered this podcast. It's my absolute favorite listen on my daily commute. Thank you. Josh says, thanks for the podcast, guys. It's my favorite to listen to during my working hours. It truly keeps me passionate to share the gospel. Maureen says, this is on our episode by Increase uh, Mather. Increase was my fourth great-grandfather on my mother's mother's side. Wow. It is fascinating to learn more about him. Ironically, I'm tuning in on the day that Cineado O'Connor took her life. It's kind, of, kind of sad, but... And then Ninsa, or Ninja, I'm not sure how it was spelled there. But anyway, I think the spell check changed it. She said, such a necessary topic to hear and consider in prayer. Thank you. Listening in from a newbie in the UK. And I just realized, I said she, but I'm not sure if Nincio was a girl or a guy. But anyway, thank you for listening to all of you. Sorry for those of you we weren't uh, reading the reviews of on Spotify. Please keep leaving reviews for us. We really appreciate them. Yeah, not going to turn down, not going to turn down positive reviews. Those are great. Definitely not. We don't always, and actually, Joel, I just realized this is also the first episode in two months where you should be hearing both Joel and I on together. So great to have the band back together. Last episode was me. Well, yeah, hopefully we do. Uh, still having trouble over here in Indonesia. I have, I feel like this has been one of the uh, more difficult getting the studios back together we've had. And I literally had a year where we recorded straight into a closet covered in clothes. So this has been kind of fun resetting it up, but hopefully we soon have all the pieces back in place and we're no longer having any issues between us. Mm-hmm. Troy, now Troy, when you uh, sent me the info for today's episode, you said... Uh, and I'm summarizing here. I have never been more scared to do an episode. <laughs> <laughs> I 
It, honestly, I mean, if it's if I've ever been more scared, it's been a while. It's been a while since I've done somebody on the show where I was like, boy, I am genuinely nervous of what people are going to respond. It's not, I told this to Joel before we start recording. It's not that I'm nervous of what you think, like in the sense of, oh no, will you like them? I just get nervous when I have these controversial people. Am I going to do a good job presenting the information uh, in a clear and concise way? I always hate if my confusion adds to the confusion. John Darby is a very controversial figure. There will be people who will see that we did an episode on John Nelson Darby and they will write off this show. They will just say, Revive Thoughts, no good. <laughs> they will, they'll skip they the episode. They won't even click on Darby it. Yeah. On. yeah, they might not click on it or they might click on it just so they can listen. And they might be, you might be listening right now saying, here's all, I'm pen and notepad ready. I'm going to tell you everything you get wrong. And <laughs> it's always really fun to make a podcast with people like that in the audience. Um, but I in think, real terms. I think, I think you are, underestimating our audience i think we have a group of intellectuals that that understand the conversation and understand yes. the dynamic and i think we have a lot of people that like john darby so that's the thing actually i agree because i think that from our experience of doing controversial people and we've done plenty of them from jonathan edwards to george whitfield to Ephraim the syrian to uh just so many different people i have found that the revived thoughts audience 99 percent of everybody listening understands what's going on here Revive Thoughts does not endorse and say we 100% agree with the theology of every one of these people because we can't do that. We, they literally contradict each other. But we do say that we're looking for the best sermons in history and we're looking for preachers and we're trying to discover what that is. We may not end up agreeing with everything these people say, but we're trying to see what God used them to do and what their role was, right? And, and what their sermons sound like because oftentimes I find I may have a preconceived notion about somebody and when I listen to their sermon and hear how they speak about Jesus— a lot of times that changes my mind on them. And I go, well, you know, I don't know that we would agree on a lot, but that guy could really talk about the Lord. And so I, I think a lot of people understand that's what we're doing. And it's been really cool to see uh, that response. I agree, Joe. I think that I think that the people are going to understand, like, that's what we're doing here, too. Yeah. And I also feel like you're don't don't uh taint the water for the people that are excited about john darby there's there's people that saw john Darby and they're like whoa a john darby episode and then here you come in there was there's some people out there that are definitely excited to have this episode. i agree and i it's probably because i run some of the like social media and twitter and or sorry x and uh all that <laughs> stuff so i'll like put up i put up the most innocent things and i'll be like people will like that and then i'll get like all these responses like only a heretic who doesn't do their research would post that and i'm like oh sorry <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry again. So, so I, I think that's why I get more defensive and more nervous. I, I've seen I've seen how wrong things can go. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'll never forget. This was like, like the first year of the show. I put up a sermon. I was like, yeah, this is by Charles Spurgeon. And someone was like, oh, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, do you have a time machine? I didn't think so. And I was like, well, I didn't. <laughs> Like, I didn't say that we had his actual voice or had him in the studio. And that was one of those moments where I realized there's just some people are not going to be happy no yeah. matter what you do. So Yeah, there's some people on the internet, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> if you've never heard the name John Darby, have no idea who he is or, you know, what he contributed to the, the theological space or uh, the structure of, of churches here in America, you're going to find out in this episode because we're going to talk all about him. Before we talk about him, though, I do want to shout out a new Patreon, Kittrick Callis. Thank you so much for joining us on the Patreon team. It really does help produce the show. Uh, if you want to help the show, contribute financially to what Revive Studios is, uh, hop on over to Patreon. Link is in the description. John Nelson Darby was born in the year 1800 in Westminster, London. 
and he spent his early years growing up in Ireland. His family was was pretty well off. He had a, a famous uncle that was a war hero, so uh, you know his family had some recognition. He was educated in, in Westminster School of London, and then he went out to Trinity College in Dublin. And these were these were well known, respected theological educational institutions at the time. And Darby graduated with a gold medal in classics at the age of 19. Now, Troy, do you know what graduating with a gold medal is? Because I wasn't quite, I assume that's like valid Victorian. Like, what does so it mean? I, yeah, so graduating with a gold medal, in this case, if I'm understanding correctly, it means that he entered a competition for classics and he was like the best of the best, which back then, like, I mean, that that's very high praise for a young student to uh-huh. get the gold medal in this like very uh, revered topic that today we don't even hardly study. But back then, that would have been like, this is a guy who's very smart, who's going places. Do you ever want to go back a few hundred years and attend a university just to see what it, it seems so different, like the way they oh, did yeah. things back then? I would love I was just, just having this conversation with my students this week that like, I we don't even we don't realize just how much like what we focus on at education would be so different to people 200 years mm, ago. They would have, yeah. they would have like not even understood. We, it, we would literally be speaking different languages to each other. Agreed. Agreed. Indeed. Uh, Darby was starting to become a lawyer uh, and he was getting pretty good, pretty far along in his education when he became convicted that Christianity was true and he became a Christian uh, and this developed some uh, feelings, some inner conflict for John Darby because, uh, you know, going into the lawyer field, he felt like there were some things that he might do as a lawyer that would be in contrast to his faith, that would compromise his faith. He joined with, you know, what we would think of the equivalent of a law firm back then. Uh, and while, you know, getting established at this law firm, um, he just didn't have a piece with what he would be doing as a lawyer in in relation to uh, his belief in, in Christianity, his newfound belief. So he gave it all up, and uh, he says this quote here. He says, lest I should sell my talents to defeat justice. He became then an ordained uh, minister to a very backwater part of Ireland. He was, however, ordained in the Church of Ireland, uh, this would go on to cause him problems, which we'll cover in a minute, with both the, both the Church of England and the Catholic Church, which were both much more popular in the Church of, you know, in Ireland at the time, being a Catholic country and all of that. Now, he began preaching and sharing Christ with this kind of very, I mean, literally peasants, and many of them started to become converted, and several of them left the Catholic faith and came over to his church. And just to give you an idea of just how rural, rural, just back area this was, I found this excerpt from a book, uh, the How the Lost Sheep Was Saved. How the Lost Sheep Was Saved. How the Lost Sheep Was Saved. And I don't. We don't normally read like long excerpts, but I just want you to kind of imagine this story playing out. Imagine your local pastor, or if you are a pastor, imagine this is what life was like. And you left the big city and the law firm to do this. He says, after upwards of an hour's toilsome walking, for the roads in some places were steep and others they were bar- scarcely passable due to the marshes. On entering the little college cottage, I looked around me and at first found no sign of anyone there except for an old woman who was crouching by the embers of a small fire. She rose as I entered and with the natural courtesy of the Irish poor offered me the low chair or rather a stool on which she had been seating. I thanked her in passing past the object up to my visit. In one corner of the hut was a heap of straw, which lay the poor sufferer. 
Some scanty covering, probably his own clothing that he wore, had been thrown over him, but as to a better clothing, there was none discernible in this humble dwelling. I approached and saw a young lad, about 17 or 18 years of age, evidently in a state of extreme suffering and exhaustion, and it was feared to be the last stage of consumption. His eyes were closed, but he opened them on my approach and stared at me with a kind of wild wonder, like a frightened animal. I told him as quietly as possible who I was and for what purpose I had come, and put a few of the simplest questions to him respecting his hope of salvation. He answered nothing. He appeared totally unconscious to my purpose. On pressing him further and speaking to him kindly and affectionately, he looked up and ascertained from the few words that he uttered that he had heard something of God and knew of a future judgment, but he had never even been taught to read. The Holy Scriptures were a sealed up book to him, and he was consequently altogether ignorant of the way of salvation as revealed to us in the gospel. His mind on this subject was truly and utterly blank. Now, the book goes on and on, and it seems I, I would like to actually read more of it, but you get the idea of just how out of the way these people were. It's so often, I think, common in our brains to think of Europe as maybe this place of education or this place of, you know, we by 1800s aren't still peasants living in rural huts that are as, you know, as, as far away from society as possible, yet that's exactly the case of what's going on here in Ireland. These can't read. They don't have, it doesn't sound like a bed for this kid. He's suffering and dying. Uh, he's, his blanket is his own covers, uh, sorry, his own clothing, and he doesn't know anything about God. And that's who John Darby had to go to. And that's just one example of what he was doing as a minister in the middle of nowhere in Ireland. And again, he had started as a lawyer in London. He was well on his way, the gold medalist for the classics, right? He's this guy who had a real future, and he turned that all around to do this. While there, he convinced many Catholics, as we said, to give up on the church of the Catholic church, and they became Christians in the church of Ireland. And things were going well, but the church, the Anglican church kind of got in the way. And they basically said, hey, if you're going to be converting people to your church in Ireland, that's, I guess, okay, but you have to make them swear loyalty to the king of England. And this became a big fight, and Darby resigned his position, said, look, I can't make them do that. I'm sworn to serve you know, Christ. This isn't what we're here to do, is to make political converts. If I ask them to do that, this will end up you know, causing distrust, all these different problems. So he resigned. And so now he was not a lawyer, and the big revival he was kind of a part of is over, and it seemed like he had nowhere to go. Yeah, and then he gets hit by, or he falls off a horse. I, don't, I, I wasn't sure if he got hit by a horse or he fell off the horse, but uh, it, it gets worse for him because he gets seriously injured uh, and bedridden for months. He is unable to leave the bed due to his injuries of this horse accident. Um, I can't imagine uh, uh, more of a low to feel as a person. Right? Um, yeah, you've gone through a lot of life. You had a lot of great potential and uh here you are hurting in pain uh no church you know that to, to be a part of uh and i just imagine you'd have to be really wrestling because there had to have been people back in london who said what are you doing giving up this great law career are you an idiot yeah. like you're going to nowhere ireland like what is wrong with you and he was probably like you'll see and while you're sitting in bed <laughs> resting and recovering you have to be sitting there thinking oh my gosh they all think they were right maybe yeah. they were right yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got it. It's got to cross your mind. As, so as he's recovering in his in his bed here uh, again, I mean, he was bedridden for several months. Uh, he had plenty of time to read the Bible, to read other books. He was studying the Bible and he, you know, he's looking at concepts of the kingdom of God. Right. Uh, he talks about it in Isaiah and, he, and he's looking at concepts of the church and um, 
he became convinced of what, in retrospect, looking back on now, we would call dispensationalism. He believed that God had a different uh, fulfillment for the nation of Israel than what was being seen in the church. And so he began to preach and teach these views of eschatology that are associated with dispensationalism, things like uh, tribulation, things like the rapture. And he also had very negative views on how the church was being run. And he began an interdenominational group. He believed that, you know, leaders in the church should rise up from within the church. Laymen should be in places of, of leadership, should learn how to teach and minister and that it it shouldn't all be at the hands of the bishop, which is how, I mean, you can see a lot of the Anglican uh, church negatively coloring his view of the church and him, his ideal version of the church in a lot of ways is undoing a lot of the ways that the Anglican church was doing things. Troy, would you say we got ourselves the, the, the father of modern dispensationalism, would you say that? Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree that, you know, and there's there will be arguments and people who say that dispensational ideas sure. existed before him. Totally, and I 100%. think that we had a sermon by Ephraim the Syrian that kind of shows, like, yeah, this, this, there's there were some of these ideas throughout history, but to deny that John Nelson Darby was like the reinvigorator of this idea, that it really mm. exploded mm. with his teachings would be, you know, wild. He definitely had a tremendous effect on dispensationalism, you know, taken off. Yeah, I like now, I like reinvigorator. I think that's a good yeah. a good uh, summary. Now you may be wondering, like, it was Darby alone? And, and what I mean by that is, Darby's kind of doing this new thing in the 19th century. Was he the only one? And the answer is no. A lot of the churches, especially the state churches, like the Anglican Church and like the churches in Europe, were dead at this time. Um, I can I can. We've had so many people on this show from this era specifically who. The people were catechized. They knew the answers. They knew everything they were supposed to say. They went to church, but there was no heart behind any of it. And there was just a staleness over the land. And, and whether it's in France, whether it's in the Netherlands, whether it's in England, whether it's in America, especially New England, people around the world were starting to crave something different, something that touched your heart, something that actually brought those things back to life. And so Darby was not alone and bringing new thinking and new ideas to the church. Everyone from Charles Spurgeon, who is leading this new Baptist movement that's really starting to catch on, all the way to people like Talmadge, people like uh, Henry Grattan Guinness, Lars Levi Lestadius, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, I mean, people all over the, the world at this time were searching for something that went beyond just the right answers, but reached people in their hearts that got them motivated to go to church, to love God, and to be a part of things like missions. And so Darby was not alone, but he gets a group, gets together with a group of ministers, and they start something called the Brethren. Now, the largest group was in a place called Plymouth, and so they end up getting the nickname the Plymouth Brethren. The Plymouth Brethren will eventually split into two different groups. One group will be this congregational kind of groups where each church kind of decides what they want, but they all agree to some of the same ideas. And a famous member of that one is George Mueller, and these people got around. One of them started an uh, uh, orphanage, and he would visit Charles Spurgeon in London, and London would kind of show him how he runs his orphanage. So they, I mean, they end up all over the place doing all kinds of different things. Men like D.L. Moody would would be like would visit and speak with them and stuff like that. 
And then there was another group that Darby ended up sticking with. He ends up sticking with the exclusive brethren. They believe that we shouldn't have each church doing its own thing. We should try to all be on the same page, kind of like the Anglican church where, hey, we're all kind of doing the same thing together. However, the goal was like, if we're all on the same page, we'll, we'll avoid divisions. Um, but the irony is it seems that like his whole life was spent trying to keep divisions from erupting in this other group called the exclusive brethren. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Yeah, so a little bit of um, a little bit of trouble in Darby's church, as far as you know. Not not everything seemed to go as smooth as what I'm sure he was hoping for. Um, but I mean, Darby was a busy guy. He worked on a lot of things. Uh, Bible translation being one of the main things. He edited and revised a version of the Bible um, that was in English, which again was relatively new at the time. Everything, everybody was King James, all King James, all the time at this era. And so um, to have other Bible, trans, you know, English Bible translations, um, we take that for granted now. We have our choice of uh, ESV, NASB, you know, uh, King James, New King James, all these things. Back then, they did not have that uh, until this era where, where Darby was along him. And not just him. I mean, there were other Bible translation groups that were working on English translations at the time. The revised version of the Bible uh, that replaced the uh, King James for a lot of people um, was one that uh, he did not directly work on, but the translation team that made that version asked him to be a part of it, and they used some of his Bible translation to help create it. And not only did he help translate new translations of the Bible into English, but also assisted in translating it into German and French. He gave several lectures and wrote several papers in academic locations across the world, including 11 in Geneva. He took five missionary journeys to America, one of which uh, he went all the way over to San Francisco and even Hawaii on one of these. Uh, and then he actually ended up even going to New Zealand himself. So he's a, a globe, a world traveler. His movement was heavily invested in missions work, and that became something that they were known for, especially in Latin America. So looking back, it, it can be hard to tell the impact of Darby, you know, uh, what was his effect on the church? I think it's clear that that there were many people that heard about Jesus because of his work, because of his teaching. He led a lot of people to the Lord. Sometimes people point to his, you know, his own church life because it, it was, you know, I think accurately represented as as having a lot of conflict there. I don't think that was Darby's intention. In some ways, you know, people compare him to like a Luther or a Calvin or a John Wesley in that way. But regardless of your opinion of him, regardless of, of what you think about his ministry or his theology, I think we can all appreciate his heart for Christ and his desire to see people saved.
is something wonderfully gracious in the way the Lord waits upon his people to instruct them. It is calculated to draw out the affections and the minds of believers in love and gratitude. But how often do they have reasons to feel shame, so that their minds and hearts make them unaffected by the means and methods in which a God of love teaches them? God is blessing them completely, and His mercy is demonstrated even in their lack. Do they feel and regret their ingratitude and ignorance? Who teaches like God? His wisdom is the saint's portion. Are they knocked down under an awareness of their own weakness and of bondage? My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so, in every way, he exactly suits himself to their many needs. He never withdraws his care He never turns aside from them, still doing them good, and though they may be fearful and fainting, his love is still manifested to them. Jesus is the fountain of all blessedness, sent to poor, weak, wretched sinners that they may have abundance of comfort, of peace, and of enjoyment. The knowledge of this knits and attaches the heart of the poor sinner to such a rich Savior. For the sinner, the very way that the Lord has led him has displayed to him the character of the God who instructs him, that even his very sorrows and trials are a manifested proof of God's free love and favor, as these circumstances display the riches of divine grace. The way in which he leads us, the particular circumstances in which we are placed, the situations we are in, are all different methods and tools of divine instruction planned by a God of love. The believer longs for rest from all that now offends, but God leaves him here to teach him many lessons. This world constituted as it is at present, is a means by which God teaches us what we could not learn in a world of glory. The believer is instructed in the long-suffering, patience, and love of God in a way he never could have known elsewhere. His lack, his weakness, his barrenness, his deadness, display most touchingly the wonderful patience of God. And here, too, he learns the astonishing proof of God's love in Christ, giving Christ for such sinners that they may be pardoned and freed, learning what God is in the person of Jesus Christ through all the particular circumstances in which the sinner is placed, despite all our weakness, shortcomings, and misdeeds, There is no feeling of hostility in God's mind toward us, not even an impatient word or look. It is all love. It is in the weakness and lack of his children that God's manner of love is even more drawn out. As the father of a family, the affections of a parent are the same for all his children, but under different circumstances it is differently manifested. The long and weak childhood of a child calls out 
all the tender sympathy and watchful care of a parent, and knits the affections of a child to him. So the Lord, during our weakness and infant-like helplessness, guards us and watches over us. And so we come to learn the manner of God's love. Then, as we advance under the watchful care and training and arrive towards maturity, we'll learn the blessedness of his love. And we come to discern how the Lord opens out the knowledge of himself. This puts us into a position of wondrous blessing. Here, I call you not servants, for the servant does not know what his father does. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known to you. This is the manner and blessedness of God's love to us. And if the believer is unaffected by this, he is in a sad and low state. For nothing so much evidences the soul's not being in a healthy state as to be unaffected to the manner of God's love toward us. To be engrossed with what is going on around us here and not to be aware that we are nearer to God than we are even to the circumstances in which we are placed. How wondrous to behold God taking pleasure in opening his mind and his plans to man, which we see evidenced in this 13th chapter of Matthew, as in the explanation to his disciples of the parables spoken to the multitude. We find here seven parables. The first parable is not a comparison or likeness of the kingdom of heaven as the others, but a declaration of the methods of the kingdom and of its particular results. The act, described as being incidental to the Son of Man before his ascension. The kingdom of heaven was to follow this, and consequent on Christ's resurrection, when a new system of things was about to be established. The other parables were not spoken at the same time. Three were addressed to the multitude, and three to the disciples alone. Of these, the first three exhibit the public character and results of this kingdom in the world, and the last three symbolized in intrinsic value and the full development and results in God's hands. The former fully developed its obvious and visible manifestation as seen in the world, and the latter, the real value of the thing itself as known in the mind of God. This expression, kingdom of heaven, as well as the kingdom of your father, is peculiar to the gospel of Matthew, the gospel most connected to prophetic testimony. In what situation, then, is the believer while here, holding communion with an absent Lord in heaven, brought into his family here, into his kingdom, and taught not to look for blessings simply upon earth during his Lord's absence, but to look for a time when his saints will know him even as they are known. That is what they are looking for. And into that situation, they have been brought as the good seed, partakers of the grace of that corn of wheat, which fell into the ground and died, so that they may live. The kingdom of heaven is like a man that sowed good seed in his field. And from verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 45, 
we have the parable and its significance, as explained by the Lord himself. These things speak their own meaning, therefore they are simply brought before us as matters of fact. He says, as putting any other construction aside, the field is the world. In these parabolical expressions, there is a perfect harmony and conformity of meaning. If we can clearly ascertain the meaning by scripture light in one, we can readily imagine the same meaning of the same word in any other place. Now, our Savior said expressly, the field is the world. This is its meaning, and no other, which brings before us the theater or the scene where the transaction recorded here takes place, the world. It presents us with the view of a person sowing good seed in his field. He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sowed it. It was a good seed he sowed, and he sowed it in his field, and this is the world. He was entitled to this field. It belonged to him. This, then, is the simple fact. The world was the field. The field belonged to Jesus, and he sowed good seed in it, something that had not previously been in it, uh, something planted which was not indigenous to the soil. Obviously, then it could not be the Jewish nation or system, for that was placed before the period here alluded to, of the work of the Son of Man. The world which is mentioned here is spoken of as a place, not where the seed had been sown and grown up, but where good seed, not yet planted, was now to be put in. And this then is in the world. Let the child of God now look around him and see whether, with the exception of those who have been manifestly brought into this new system, he sees anything of this good seed in the world. Does it look like a field sown with good seed? The world then is his, the son of man's field, and so this baffles the wisdom and power of those who pretend to claim any portion of it as their own, and who seek to have it at all and are described as saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. It is not theirs. It is Christ's. His, by an indefeasible right, by an indisputable title, his. This is calculated to overthrow the pride of a vain man, who puts in his pretensions for a share. The vain man calls the world his own, but it is not. It is Christ's, and everyone who takes it as his own individual right is meddling with things which do not belong to him, and of which he must give an account to the rightful owner. The world then is this field, and the field is Christ's. While men slept, his enemy came, and so tears among the wheat. Here we have the character and circumstances under which this change came about. These men, these field laborers, were put in trust, and the enemy brought in the evil seed while these men slept. Oh, how little are men aware of the inexhaustible perseverance of the enemy of the soul. It is while men sleep he does the mischief. It may not for a time be seen, but he has sown it, and it will soon spring up. Satan is not hindered even by the good seed being there, for when the blade sprung up 
and brought its fruit, then appeared the tares also. God does not certainly overrule it for his people's good, but the fact is there that the tares have been sown and spring up. They may not be seen immediately, but still they are in the ground, and much of it is occupied by them. The men slept. The enemy entered unperceived, sowed the tares among the wheat, and then went his way, having done the mischief, and the man who cannot see that these tares are now occupying the ground and springing up must certainly be lacking in spiritual discernment. And what a need we have of continual, jealous watchfulness, that the ground does not become more overrun with them. What a need to be awake, to be aware of the position we are in, that there is a positive separation between the wheat and the tares, that there is a wall of everlasting boundary between them, and that we are not aware enough of this. Doesn't sad and bitter experience testify that there is too much moral evil encouraged, that there is a very bad and low state tolerated among believers, that there is a mixing up of the world with the things of God, an apparent shrinking and withdrawing from the Lord's work, do we even look for the cause? We find the whole of it here, the men slept, and let in the enemy. But it was his enemy, as the psalmist says, Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. The Lord makes his cause and his people's one. They are his, and therefore their enemy is his. He calls them brothers. I will declare your name for my brothers. The saints of God get courage from this declaration when they know that the battle is in the Lord's hand. The saints look on this little word, his enemy, with great delight. If we are aware of our deficiencies and failings and recognize that while we slept, the enemy came in, then let us look to the Lord. Even though filled with shame in ourselves, yet let us look to the remedy. We will learn here by this one little word that it is his enemy, and so we have the strength of Christ against him. When the blade sprung up, then appeared the tares. This was the successful result of the enemy's work. They sprung up together. There was not at first any outward difference. They were all mixed up together. There was no remedy for that, as we see in the present state of things. To instantly set the world right was not in the mind of God. Man was found a faithless steward. He had been negligent and led in the enemy, and the field was found overrun with tares. But God's plans were not frustrated by it. The servants come and say, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Why does it have tares? He said, An enemy has done this. The Son of God looked down at his field, which he had sowed with good seed, and found it filled with tares. But, though in that position, we find it is not the wisdom of God to set the world right by plucking up the tares. The servant said, Do you wish for us to go and gather it all up? This is according to man's wisdom, who would set the world right again by plucking up and rooting out heretics, and purging out the wickedness according to their own desire. No, said the Lord. There are circumstances existing at present which made this proposal impossible. 
They are now all together, and let them both grow together. If I were to give you power now to pluck up the tares, you might also root up the wheat with them, which cannot be. Let both grow together until the harvest. The Lord has graciously explained the meaning of the word in verse 39. The harvest is the end of the world. The term world here is not the same as that used previously, where it is said the field is the world. This unquestionably is, as the literal translation signifies, the age or dispensation, and should be read, the harvest is the end of the age. In the first instance where it is used, it rendered the meaning simply the world, which is the scene of this great transaction. It is quite unconnected with the idea of place and conveys the time when it was to occur, at the end of the age or dispensation, and at the time of the harvest, says the Lord, I will say to the reapers, gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now this presents us first with the view of the gathering together of the tares in bundles for the purpose of being burnt, and then the gathering of the wheat into the barn. After this is the destruction of the tares, as explained by our Lord, as therefore the tares are gathered together and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which sin, and will cast them into a furnace of fire. And after that, that is, after the burning of the tares, then the righteous will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Here is the order. The tares are gathered in bundles to be burned. The wheat is lodged in the barn. The destruction of the tares, or their entire elimination, then takes place. And finally, after their destruction, then the righteous will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In the third parable, spoken to his disciples alone, we find the Lord using terms similar to these. The angels dividing the two parties, which were until now mixed up together, gathering the good into vessels, and casting the bad away and destroying them. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. This brings before us the unhindered blessedness of the children of God. Of those who are alive to God, that time is coming, and it is a thing greatly desired for by the saints. The present position of the world makes it known to them. They see that the tares are blossoming fast, in iniquity, ready for the destruction, and they see the ripening of the saints of God. And though now apparently and sadly undistinguished, the Lord is ripening them for the harvest and will gather them in. The tares are making their progress, being brought together ripe for destruction. Though they may think all is safe and no fear has overtaken them, yet certain and sudden vengeance awaits them. But God is true, and his word will come to pass. Read Revelation fourteen fourteen to 20 Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. There are the tares then ripening, thinking no harm will happen to them, strengthening themselves in their iniquity, and counting on the very providence of God as the very occasion of their strength and power. And yet it will prove to be their utter destruction. The heathen is sunk down in the pit which he made. Though hand joins in hand, the wicked will not go unpunished. The wheat is not left in the world on the great day. They are gathered into the barn. They are taken out of the way, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. They witness the destruction of the Lord's enemies, and then the righteous will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Here we behold the blessedness of the child of God and the perfect character of that blessedness which the future results of God's love will demonstrate. Just remember that everything that offends has been cast out. All sin is burnt up and destroyed, the saints safely housed in the barn, and then they will shine. Observe, then the righteous will shine. They are the righteous, but who are the righteous? Those who are one with Christ, his character is brought forward as the Lord, our righteousness, and the Son of Righteousness. He will be the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Second Samuel 23.4 And in these last words of David, we have, along with the description of the glory of the Lord at his coming, a view of the destruction of the wicked. It is a similar passage to the one in the text, and refers to the same event. But the sons of Belial, that is, the children of the wicked one, will be all of them as thorns thrown away, because they cannot be taken with hands. That is, they cannot be drawn by the teaching and begging of men to come to the right way. But the man that will touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they will be utterly burned with fire in the same place, verses 6 and 7. That is, in the same place where they are, similar to the burning of the tares. Christ is the Son of Righteousness, and therefore they are righteous. He is the Son, and therefore they shine as the Son. When He will appear, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is, and we will be made like Him. This blessedness was contemplated and spoken of by God's saints of old. We have it in the words of David, As for me, 
I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. That was what he was looking forward to, to shine as the sun, as the righteous, to see God's honor vindicated, Satan and his powers cast out, and all God's enemies destroyed, and he himself bearing Christ's likeness. Then he would be satisfied. But Paul also expresses himself strongly, If by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, when I will see Christ as he is and be like him, shining as the sun, as the sun of righteousness. That is what I now see in spirit, and that is what I now believe in faith, and that is what I am just looking for, to be like Jesus in his kingdom. Is there in you, dear brothers, this earnest panting after this glory, this awareness of enjoying these future things? Oh, they are calculated to bring much joy, very real and deep comfort, to know that we will shine as the sun. When the clouds of vengeance, which now threaten an ungodly world, will have been scattered and just judgment on them, when these clouds will then be carried away and dispersed, and all iniquity cast out, then will the righteous flourish, then comes his time of much delight. Brothers, aren't these things calculated to rejoice the heart of the believer? Further remarks that can be said in the kingdom of their father. Here is great blessedness to the child of God in this appropriating word of happiness. It shows the position in which the Lord Jesus has placed them, associated with God as their father. In his kingdom, we see the mighty result. Not only that they will be righteous, will shine as the sun of righteousness, but be brought into their father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He unites himself to them as one calling them brother, calling them to look up to God as their father. I will declare your name to my brothers, and again, I go to my father and your father to my God and your God. There are two things which, in anticipation, minister great comfort to all believers. They will see the Savior, whom they loved, and they will be found in him, participating in his glory, and like him. This is what they should be rejoicing in, pressing toward, and looking for. If then you are the children of God, what is grieving you? Think of your high privileges. We will see him as he is. Be like him, in the presence of the Father, in his house, in the kingdom of our Father, having fellowship with him everlastingly. This is the portion of the child of God, a portion we are called on to rejoice in, even here, for it is ours. It is an inheritance reserved for us, and we are reserved to shine as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. The church will not always have to mourn an absent Lord. He will come to claim his bride, to take her to himself, that where he is, she may be also. So we praise, Father, I will that they also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am, and in him she is complete. For the Father gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Here, then, is the position of the church with Christ, one body, one mind.
one in all things, one in tastes, one in desires. Believers so taste the Father's love most blessedly by beholding the Lord, so sacrificing himself as to bring this love to them. Purchased for their enjoyment and inheritance, they feel the Father's love. I say not for you. I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. If we are believers, let us raise our thoughts to the bliss that awaits us and not be sinking to the bottom of or floating on the surface of spiritual enjoyment. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are here or what your cares or your conflicts. It is but for a moment. The portion of the saints is to rejoice. But what is it that you are bowed down for? Is it a feeling of your own weakness? Why, the very joy of the Lord is your strength. Why are you suffering? What is it that keeps you down? Is it the world of sin? That is your enemy, and that it is your enemy is the cause of the greatest rejoicing. This is your confidence and should be your delight, for it is a conquered enemy. If you feel it is your enemy, you know it is his enemy, and then you are brought into the same position with the Lord Jesus, on one side with him, fighting one common enemy. Jesus warned his disciples of this trouble. But he promised them his peace, promised to be with them by the Spirit, and testified to them the result of all the work he was doing for them. I have overcome the world. Think, if you are then who are so loved and so made happy here, what happiness yet awaits you when you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father? Blessed indeed will be that day when... We will see him as he is, first be like him, and then see him as he is. Oh, that blessedness, when after all troubles and conflicts are over, we will awake in his likeness. Believers, is there nothing in this to awaken your joy in meeting Jesus? Is there nothing in this to throw contempt upon the world and its worthless joys? The soul that loves Jesus loves one who has conquered all his enemies. He that ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. In this is the Son of God's love manifested, in that he humbled himself to descend to the children of men, to bear their iniquity, to carry their sorrows and troubles, to minister to their joys and comforts, and to bear away sin from them forever. And their joy and confidence is that the same Lord has ascended on high, having led captivity captive, having destroyed his and their enemy. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Is it any comfort to you that the wisdom of God will soon be seen in the world to the destruction of all that oppose it? Would you like to have the world sifted and all iniquity purged out? Would it rejoice your heart to hear that Jesus was now coming? In fact, would you like him to come now? Oh, how sad, how how very sad it is that when he is just about to come and his saints about to be made entirely like him, that they should be mixed up in any way with the workers of iniquity and found practicing their habits, pursuits, or satisfactions. Pray, brothers that you may be led to a more simple and entire conformity to the image of your Savior, 
that you may be cleansed from the unsatisfying and unsanctifying desires of the world, so that you may be ready to meet your Lord at His appearing. What I really liked about this sermon was, you know, he says, how did the, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, he says, how did the enemy get in and, and throw the seed around? And he says, uh, it's because the men were sleeping. They were supposed to be on guard and they weren't doing their job. And by that, the enemy was able to sneak in. And then he kind of just goes, you know whose fault that is today? That's the church. We're asleep. When we often look around and we complain about the state of the world and we go, you know, where, why is evil winning? Why are things so bad? Why is it so corrupt? Why, you know, why is this and that? And he goes, because of us, right? We're the church. We're the people that God has left in charge of, you know, the way things are. And yet, uh, if things are bad, it's because we're sleeping at the, at the door. We're oftentimes not doing our job. And yet he ends, though, not on this negative note of just, you know, we're all to blame. Uh, but instead, he really ends on that triumphant note of who is going to solve all this for us, who is going to be the one who sweeps in victory for us, who is the one that that will do what none of us can do, and that is Jesus Christ. We, we look to him, the battle is won, and we are waiting for him to fulfill that promise. And I think that's a hopeful word that all of us can certainly be encouraged by. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Phil Yonda. Phil is married to his wife, Christina, for nearly eight years now. He's a Starbucks partner and received his bachelor's degree in counseling from College of Biblical Studies. He then got his master's in biblical studies from Grace School of Theology. He's a member of Free Grace Alliance, and he attends Houston's First Baptist Church. He also says he's probably much too active on Twitter with his personal account and one where he just posts John Nelson Darby quotes. Darby fan, for sure, uh, over Phil, here. Phil is our guy. Let me tell you, if you are a listener <laughs> to this show, I have mentioned Phil in the past. He was a Patreon early on. But Phil Yonda is is as big a supporter and fan. When, when our Revive Thoughts account had like less than 100 followers on Twitter, Phil found us. He would like our statuses. He would retweet us. He has had our backs now for like four years on uh, on Twitter. He he is a, a, he is a brother to the show, and it's it's great that we finally have had a chance to have him actually record a sermon. He is um, just a great guy, and I really appreciate him. And I'm glad that we were able to finally get him on the show and get him to do this episode for us. So thank you, Phil, for being a listener. Thank you for supporting us from a very early uh, very early days of Revive Thoughts and. Uh, Thank you that, yeah, thank you just for being able to, to help us out with this. Now, this episode, we encourage you to leave a Spotify review. That's right. We just discovered Spotify reviews. They're kind of new. And so if you are listening right now on Spotify, you're on Popple Podcasts or you're on YouTube, this might not apply to you, although you can also leave a review and comment. We're happy to receive them. Uh, but if you're on Spotify specifically, leave us a review on there. We're trying to get these Spotify review things figured out. So I will be looking for them this time. And uh, hopefully on the next episode or a future episode here soon, we can read some of these new Spotify reviews. So thank you very much for leaving those. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.